0: The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. It's time to get in the ring. Yes, it is. It's time to get in the ring with DJ D Cooks. Danny Kukler here. Um, And I have a very special guest with me. He is a great wrestling historian. He has the great Cobra Press Archives Facebook page and Twitter page on the internet. The great interwebs where he posts great wrestling news clippings and great resources. Um. is yeah, Scott Teal. Scott, how are you doing?
1: Well, I'm doing just great, Danny. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on.
0: Yes, I'm doing a lot more wrestling history pieces since we are looking since you know everything hit the fan, and I don't really want to look review empty arena wrestling, even though even though it's weird. It's it's really weird right now.
1: Uh Uh-huh. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. In fact, I, I I really haven't looked, I don't think I've watched maybe three or four wrestling shows since around 1981, 82,
0: something like that. Wow. That, that, that is really interesting. Um, (laughs) but how did you get started in the wrestling business?
1: Well, I was at a, uh, girlfriend's house in 1968 and, uh, She invited me over to uh, have dinner with her family. I was, uh, let's see, I guess I would have been about ninth grade then. And then she invited me over to dinner, uh, lunch, and we're at the dinner table. I knew nothing about wrestling. I think I had seen one clip of wrestling and best I can remember, it was a guy named Sailor Art Thomas. Man, this guy was built, not like you wouldn't believe. And he did this thing where they played the drums and his chest muscles would bounce up and down, you know, it was really cool. That's all I remember about wrestling. But anyways, I go over to this girl's was house where Eddie
0: Thomas, an African American wrestler.
1: Yes, sure was. Sure was. He was probably had the best body of any any pro wrestler ever uh, at that time. Uh, I mean, I I wouldn't say yeah, I'd say ever. He was I mean, he was absolutely built like nothing you had ever seen before. I mean, it was it was just incredible.
0: Yes we continue on i just to okay
1: that. so anyways we're eating lunch and i guess we started about quarter to one and one o'clock everybody just gets up from the table takes their dishes in another room and disappears and i i looked over at the girl i was with and i said what is going where'd everybody go and she says oh, we're all going in to watch wrestling and i said wrestling and she says yeah come on so we went in the living room and sat down and of course, I knew nothing what, what, what was going on, and man, what I saw absolutely captivated me, and I was hooked from then on. I mean, I didn't miss a show. In fact, they showed pro wrestling on Saturday, I want to say Saturday night, uh, like at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and then they repeated the show on another station on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. And from that point on, I watched it. I watched the show twice every week. As long as I was in Florida, I never missed it.
0: So, you're originally from Florida?
1: Yep. And that's where I grew up in a small town called Bradenton. Well, it's not so small anymore, but it's called Bradenton, uh, just south of Tampa.
0: Wow. So, you were watching championship wrestling from Florida with Gordon Soley.
1: I, oh, I, yes, a- absolutely. Absolutely. The first show I saw, Gordon, of course, was commentating, and they had the great Malenko and Hans Mordier. But the thing I remember that really hooked me was Jose Lothario. Lether- uh, well, actually, I believe it was Wahoo McDaniel came out holding Jose Lothario, like holding him up. And Ho- and Lothario, uh, no, it must have been Joe Scarpa. Anyway, Joe Scarpa was all bloodied up. And they were helping him out to the, st- you know, to talk to Gordon. And he was crying. He he said he was talking to the gladiator who was Ricky Hunter, was a mask wrestler at the time, a big big superstar down there at the, during those days. And what had happened is the fans had taken up a collection at one of the shows and bought Ricky a wristwatch. And the storyline goes that Joe Scarpa caught Malenko and Mortier in the dressing room taking the watch out of Ricky's, uh, the gladiators locker and they were going to break it. So Joe was crying, going on stage. He's gone. I tried to stop him. I tried to stop him. I couldn't stop them. They got the watch. And I'm telling you, you talk about soap opera. It was fantastic. And I didn't miss it from then on. Like I said, I just, I was hooked from that point on. And I watched championship wrestling from Florida uh, for the next six years. And, uh, that was for just before I moved to, uh, six years later is when I moved to Tennessee.
0: And then did you find out about Tennessee wrestling?
1: Well, uh, before that, uh, I started, uh, I discovered uh, a couple months after I discovered pro wrestling, I discovered magazines I was a big comic book fan, and every week I'd go to the drugstore and I'd buy every single comic book that came out. Right. And while I was there, they have a big selection of wrestle of magazines. And I noticed one day they had a wrestle magazine called Wrestling World. So I picked it up and took it home. And you talk, that was the greatest thing ever. Wrestling magazines. I read wrestling magazines. You know, every one that came out, I bought just like the you know uh, watching the TV show. And then uh, one day I got it up, uh, I think it was 1970. I thought, you know what? There's not a whole lot of coverage on Florida in these magazines. It sort of bothered me, you know, and uh, everything was about Bruno and New York and California. And so one day I wrote a letter and I talked about the great wrestling in, in Florida, how great it was, and that they, I wish they'd had more coverage about, you know, in the, in the magazines. And this was wrestling review that I wrote to and sure enough another month or so goes by and here's my letter actually published in the magazine so that wow. was my first yeah that was my first published piece in in a wrestling magazine you talk about excited <laughs> that was so cool and uh i don't even know where i got the idea but uh well i met a guy named Koatiki. he was a wrestler uh underneath wrestler for there in florida and he was going he he worked later on for Ann Gunkel up in Georgia. I met him, we became good friends. He was training a guy named Bill Dexter and Bill and I became good friends and we all hung out together quite a bit quite often. And uh somehow I don't even remember, it's been so long ago, but I got the idea of taking pictures at the matches. So I bought a nice camera, a Mamiya C core and thirty five millimeter and I mean a s yeah is that right? 30, I guess it's 35 millimeter. I can't remember what it was. We don't use film anymore, no, but
0: we don't. <laughs> sure don't.
1: Yeah, so uh, but I got a nice camera and I went started going to the matches and I started to learn about uh, matches being held in some of the small towns in Florida, Arcadia, Winter Haven. I never went to Lakeland, uh, but Fort Myers, uh, Wachula, a lot of the tiny little towns around Bradenton had pro wrestling. In fact, they even came to Bradenton one time, and I'll never forget sitting in the in the bleachers there. They, I, I don't think the bleachers were five feet from the ring they didn't even have ringside on one side of the ring the building was so small It was an old armory but anyway i started taking pictures and i learned that uh if you carry a bag that looked like a wrestler's bag with my rest, with my camera stuff in it i could walk up to the door and just sort of nod at the guy taking tickets say i'm here to take pictures and and they just usher me in. So I didn't, I didn't have to pay, which <laughs> that was so cool. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't have anything to do with the wrestling office, but, uh, you know, I wanted to take pictures and started, then I started writing for the magazines and sending magazines into, uh, some of the magazines like big book of wrestling, uh, wrestlers, wrestling guide. And, uh, I actually got paid $25 every time I sent in an article with pictures and, so that that was pretty much how I got my start in, in, in pro wrestling, just uh, freelancing uh, re- uh, articles for national magazines. I never had anything to do with the uh, actual promotion in Florida. I never met, uh, other than just, you know, when I was first became a fan, you know, I went up and I'd get autographs from Eddie Graham, Briscoe, and a lot of those guys, you know, but I never actually met them and, you know, sat down and talked to them or got to know them on a on a first name basis or anything, but, but anyway, the magazine that's was really kicked off my start. Uh, sometime around, well, it was in 1972. I started publishing a newsletter called, uh, the Tampa scene. And inside that newsletter, I printed information about what was going on in the world of wrestling in Tampa. Uh, the results, every match that happened, both television and, and the house shows, uh, little things about, what happened on TV and uh, in the national magazines, they had a, they had what they called fan club corners and they would list people's name and their address. And they say, so-and-so is looking for pen pals from Texas or pen pals from Pennsylvania. Uh, so-and-so has a bulletin called California wrestling report. So anyway, I sent in the information to the magazine and sure enough, they put that little ad in there and it was in there every month. Scott Teal has Tampa, the Tampa theme for sale, 25 cents. Uh, write him at this address and I started getting orders from I mean from everywhere it was really cool and after a few months I changed the name to Florida Fanfare because I had learned that there was uh, wrestling in places other than Tampa when you're a wrestling fan back then uh, if you're just a real casual fan you don't realize they have wrestling in Tampa on Tuesday uh miami wednesday jacksonville on thursday tallahassee friday orlando monday you think it's just in tampa and when i learned there was wrestling in other towns every day of the week i mean i I thought that was the coolest thing so i started publishing the results in those in that uh, newsletter and subsequently changed it from the tampa scene to florida fanfare because it covered the whole state
0: right and you know like how would you get these results? Would you actually go to the matches, or would you would somebody phone you in on 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 the results? Would, would
1: uh, you have so, so, some of it I, at the drugstore when I go down to the drugstore every week? Uh, they had newspapers from. St. Petersburg, Miami, Orlando, and I'd just leaf through the through the magazines and write down the results, or I'd go to the library. The library carried a few of those newspapers from out in the state, so I'd go to the library and write down the results. Uh, I can't really remember how I got some of the smaller shows, you know, like, like I said, like uh, Winter Haven, Florida, or uh, arcadia unless i just somehow found out about sometimes on the uh, championship wrestling from florida tv program they would announce they would say we're going to have wrestling this saturday night in in uh Wachula. and and i'd go to those shows and while i'm while i was there taking pictures i'd write down the results of the matches and but i had pen pals too from all parts of the state people in miami would send me results and programs i had a guy in orlando in fact the guy in Orlando. I wish I knew where he was. Uh, we corresponded for five, six months. He used to send me the Orlando program and I would send him the program from Tampa. And uh, that was my first really correspondent in Florida. Uh, but uh, that's that's pretty much how I got got those results. And during that same time, I was corresponding with people all over the United States, uh, In te- people in Texas. One of the guys, uh, Jim Lancaster, uh, he wrestled uh, in later years, but he was just a fan at the time. He lived in Dayton, Ohio, and he used to send me, I mean, nice uh, write-ups on the matches in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, Jim's probably one of my oldest friends as far as wrestling correspondents go back in those days. And fortunately, we had the opportunity to meet when he came into Tennessee years later and uh, make a few towns together. And uh, so, since then, we've you know become friends and we stay in touch fairly regularly
0: i was about to ask any notable people you've um corresponded with and you said jim lancaster that that's very interesting
1: yeah it was cool that that he went on to have a career in pro wrestling and uh, he came to tennessee i don't remember uh, it may i may have i guess i realized he was coming to tennessee i used to go to the office uh the wrestling office uh when they finished booking the cards for the week to find out who was wrestling in the town, so I could do my, pro, do you know, do the lineups for the my Slamagram Arena programs, and he was coming through there one one time, and uh, I, I don't know how we got in touch with each other. I may have just gone to the matches and saw him there, and we ended up making a couple trips to a couple small spot shows. He was managing the Bounty Hunters at the time, as before Jimmy Kent came along. And uh, we went to, I remember we went to Columbia, the uh, bounty hunters or wrestling, the McGuire twins. I don't know if you're familiar with the McGuire's. They were big, big guys, you know, uh, sort of a haystack Calhoun type characters, but they were, they're probably the heaviest uh, pro wrestlers, you know, in, in the history of the sport, pretty much. How big were they? Oh, so five 600 pounds i think if uh, and that wasn't just hype you know they were pretty much legitimate you know uh really heavy guys they were huge Damn. they weren't tall necessarily tall as they were you know wide <laughs> i guess <they're> just- <laughs> 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 that that
0: that that'd be really funny um so anything else you recount from florida
1: uh yeah a couple interesting stories uh when I was uh, doing my uh, newsletter, I found a guy in Tampa uh, who owned a newsstand in Tampa. And a friend of mine that was helping me with the newsletter that lived in Tampa, his name was James Brown. And James found this guy and talked the guy into putting my newsletter on his newsstand. So the guy sold my Tampa Scene newsletter in Florida Fanfare later on his newsstand I didn't learn about it until later, but Eddie Graham apparently saw a copy of it or somebody found saw it and gave him a copy. But apparently Eddie was not happy whatsoever with it. It wasn't Ugh. that I said it. It wasn't an expose. Uh, well, it wasn't an expose as the type of expose you think of as as like became the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, where they told what was happening behind the scenes. Mine was strictly results and who beat who, who attacked who on television, you know, what the feuds were. But the, the expose part of it was, it let people in Miami Beach realize there was wrestling in Tampa. And a lot of times the guys wrestled the same guy in Tampa that they did in Miami Beach. And likewise, people in Jacksonville, uh, people in Tampa also, and they I'll say, hey, this happy. That no. People no, want they didn't to want the to fans
0: two two together.
1: Yes, they didn't want fans to know that kind of stuff. You know that the, you know, Jack Briscoe wrestles Paul Jones in Tampa. Well, he also wrestled him on Wednesday night in Miami, Thursday night in Jacksonville, and then they may have been in either Fort Lauderdale or Tallahassee on Friday. You know, it, it was sort of as an expose on the business that why would these guys wrestle every single night of the week? You know, so so I heard Eddie wasn't real happy about it, uh, but uh, I never. You know, never had gotten any pushback from it in any of the shows. Uh, when I went to Tampa, I took pictures a few times, not a whole whole lot. Usually, I took pictures at the spot shows. Um, I didn't want to, uh, I guess you say, impose myself too much, uh, get in the way of anything, especially in a big venue like Tampa. Small small spot shows, I didn't, you know, I wasn't as inhibited about doing some, pl- you know, about going up to the ring and leaning up, taking pictures and all that. But I was sort of. You know, I, I didn't like doing it in Tampa as much. I took a lot of pictures in Sarasota, which really is where I took most of my pictures. I, I just Bradenton is just uh, the next town up from Sarasota, so I went there every time they had wrestling, which was usually once a month, once every other week.
0: That's really interesting. Um, so,
1: where did they run in Tampa? Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. And how An old building. They- they'd been running there since the uh, at least the 30s, I guess 1930s. They'd been running in that building.
0: And how how many people did that that
1: hold? Oh boy, I'd have to say maybe 5,000, four 000 to five thousand. And they packed it out. I mean, I, I know you know you hear guys all the time tell their story, and it's always yeah we packed it, we sold out every show we were on, and that's not the case. But they packed out Fort Homer Hester, the Army more times than they didn't.
0: Ah, uh, very cool, very cool. So you moved to Tennessee,
1: uh-huh.
0: and and what what were the differences between the Tennessee wrestling and the Florida wrestling that you noticed?
1: Oh, it was night and day. Florida was mat wrestling. I mean, those guys, even the heels, man, they could go. They could wrestle. Uh, it was it was very strictly uh, c- competitive style pro wrestling you know, you, you, they get in there and you'd believe that they were really going at it, trying to wrestle each other. I mean, they, they do their dirty stuff. The heels would do their dirty moves and pulling hair and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, for the most part, it was wrestling. When I came to Tennessee, it was a completely different animal. I mean, it was punch, kick, a lot of comedy. Uh, it was just something totally different from what I was used to. I didn't mind it, but it did. It was it was hard at first, to get used to it. Although I didn't come to the matches all that much in, in Tennessee for the first year, I went a few times to take pictures. of A couple, a few of the guys I knew when they'd come through. Uh, once, or just, or I'd just go once in a while to take some pictures for one of the magazines, and uh, and got to know a few of the guys that were there. Uh, at the time, I was going to Trevecca Nazarene College, uh, majoring in music. And, uh, so I was pretty busy at school, but I, like I said, I did go to the matches when I, when I had an opportunity.
0: Right. You were a music major?
1: Yeah, sure was. I played, tr- uh, I, my major was music education and I, uh, got my minor in trumpet performance. On, yeah.
0: Ah, so you were a music teacher. I, my brother's a music teacher.
1: Well, that's what I planned to do. But, uh, as things turned out, uh, I met my wife, a uh, future wife in, uh, Uh, at Trevecca, I was in my, my last year there and she was in her first year. So when we, when I graduated, I thought, you know, we'll just, we got married shortly after I graduated and we decided that that we would just, I'd just stay, uh, I was working for UPS part-time. United Parcel Service, and right. I thought, well, I'll just keep working for UPS, and then when she graduates in three years, and I can decide where we're going, we can decide where we're going to go, if I want to teach, you know, what school I want to teach at, try and find a school to teach at where we want to live, and, but as it turned out, I got uh, on it with UPS full-time, And it was a great job. I thought, uh, you know, I'm just going to hang with this. And I'm so glad I did because it gave me a gave me a great living. And now I've got a great retirement and uh, enjoying my... Great benefits, uh, too. What's that?
0: Great benefits, too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that was the best decision I ever made. It sure was.
0: Uh, I didn't know that. Um, My my brother's a music teacher at, at a Catholic high school in the Philadelphia area, so...
1: Yeah, so yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't, didn't miss it. I mean, I, I love music still, and we go to go to the symphony and musicals and uh, things like that still, you know. But uh, uh, I guess if I, I, I don't know that I really would have enjoyed teaching all that much. To be honest, I didn't enjoy my uh, student teaching, and I definitely didn't like marching band, which is, you know, I that would have been part of what I had to do. I loved more of the performance, the symphony, uh, playing in the orchestra or directing the orchestra. I enjoyed that kind of thing, but I didn't care for a lot of the other, you know, like I said, like the marching band, that that type of thing.
0: Right, right, right. That's very interesting because because my brother enjoys both aspects. So
1: Right. So. Good. I, I
0: caught I caught I caught on to that. I had to ask you about that because because actually it goes along with my story as well because my brother's in music education was good. And my sister is going to be, my sister is a music education major as well. Right. She's wow. You got music in, in your family. So it's yeah. very much in my family. Um, Good. So, um, what? So it was very punch kick, punch kick, punch kick. Um, um, the Tennessee style of wrestling. It took you a while to get used to, but once you got used to it, did you fall in love?
1: Oh, I'd always been in love with pro wrestling, whether it was wrestling or whether it was punch and kick. You know, I, I it didn't bother me. I just loved being around it. And probably, I, I think the thing that attracted me most, uh, and I'm talking about from the very beginning uh, when I first discovered pro wrestling, not it wasn't necessarily the wrestling, although I love that. I love the competition aspect of it. And uh, but it was more from day one. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, because I, I had friends at school when I first discovered it, you know, I got talking about it and they say, you know, all that stuff fake, don't you? And, you know, I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know it, you know, but uh, that didn't matter to me. It was so cool. But what fascinated me the most was all I could think was, how do they do this? Who is it that tells these guys to win or who, who has to lose? Uh, you know, how do they determine how they do this? How do these matches, how are these matches laid out? Uh, who, who's running things behind the scenes, you know, it was the background information I wanted to know, that's, that's just something that just intrigued me, and that's really, I would say, more than the wrestling, that is what carried me through the years to the point where I am today, I mean, it just, I always wanted to know more, and that's really why I started doing, uh, writing my books in 1990, or magazines in 1996, I wanted to know more about it, and uh, I mean, I knew everything about it, but I not knew everything, but I, I had been in the business. So I, you know, I was smart to the business for all those years. So it wasn't like I was wanting to learn anything, but I was wanting to learn more about the wrestlers careers by 1996 and letting other people know what the wrestling business, how the wrestling business really worked, because it was already exposed. The observer had been around quite a while. Right. You know, people knew what was what. So I wanted to have these wrestlers tell their stories. In their words, you know, so that people can understand how the wrestling business worked, what happened behind the scenes with, you know, with whoever, you know, I was writing about.
0: Was there a resilience at first with some of these wrestlers, like maybe like a Jody Hamilton or like a Soli? Uh,
1: Not at first, uh, uh, not with me. Uh, The the whole reason is when I went to work uh, in uh, 1976 for Nick Goulis, the promoter here. Uh, they, he accepted me. I mean, open arms. He told me, you know, Scott, he says, I want you to do publicity for me, pictures. Uh, he said, I think you'll do a good job for me. He says, and and what he did is he asked me to ride with him one night shortly after he asked me to come work for him. He called and he says, would you ride to Chattanooga with me? I said, well, sure. Uh, man, you talk about feeling Made made me feel how good that made me feel to have the promoter ask me to ride, you know, make a trip with him. And on down on the way down there, you know, he knew I was smart to the business, uh, but he gave me what I like to term the wrestling facts of life. And he said, Scott, he says, when you come come and work for me, he says, you've got the run of whatever you want to do. He says, I I like your work. He says, you can go in and out of the dressing room. He says you're you're one of the boys. I mean that's what he told me. He says you're one of the boys, but he says one thing. Please re- remember, he says never tell anyone else about what goes on in, behind you know behind the doors of, of pro wrestling in the dressing room in the office. He says all that is kayfabe. He says you don't. And I said I said thank you. I said that's absolutely the way I'll be. I said I've never exposed the business to anybody. I said even when I was just a fan before I knew anything about the business. I never shared that kind of stuff with anybody when I learned and a lot of the stuff I learned was through osmosis from being around the boys, you know, until I actually got in the business. Uh, but I learned a lot of it before then. And uh, so it was pretty cool, but that that's the really the thing that stands out the most about the, that earliest time in the business was making that trip with Nick and him reading, uh, reading me the uh, wrestling facts of life.
0: <laughs> yeah. And... That, that must have been amazing to be on that trip with Nick Um, um, What, what was your impre- first impression of Nick?
1: Oh, he was, I, I love Nick. He was great. He tr- always treated me nice. He, I mean, he always treated me well. I had heard the stories, you know, the guys talking about what a cheapskate he was and he cheated people. And yeah, yeah, he, he, he did a lot of that. I'm sure. Uh, you know, but then again, as I get, got older and uh, understood more about the business, uh, Nick Goulis was making 15 and $25 payoffs in 1969, 1970, 1972, three. But then again, Jerry Jarrett was making $50 payoffs in 1980, 81. And that wasn't much better than $25 back in 1970. <laughs> no, you know? it wasn't. And the wrestlers will tell you the same thing. You know, they all, no matter who it is, you know, what who's promoting, most of the wrestlers will say, "Ah, oh, he was a thief, he stole, and he did this, he did that. And I've heard it about uh, pretty much every promoter in the world, you know. There, there's a few, you know, you don't hear as many bad things about it. Paul Bosch, for one. Uh, uh, John uh, Owen up in Portland. Yeah. yeah, you know, you don't hear much bad about them, but there are guys, man, I've heard guys rip. Rip both of them uh, unmercifully for things they did, you know, so. But it's just, you know, your perspective and, you know, just a personal situation they had with that, you know, with those promoters. But Nick was great to me. He treated me, I mean, just almost like a son. He really did.
0: Um, I'm looking at some of your titles and these got you have written books with a who's who.
1: Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of things you asked that's right, and I didn't finish it really um about whether the guys were reluctant uh when i the first stuff I did was actually a newsletter called whatever happened to, and that was in nineteen ninety six and that's when I started doing the interviews with the guys and and they would actually really open up with me about their careers, you know, they didn't hold anything back um the first five issues of whatever happened to there was pretty kayfabe because I had no intent, even though we, the observer was a big thing by then, I had no intent to expose the business to anybody through a printed newsletter. And so they were sort of kayfabe, just letting people know what happened to these d- different wrestlers, you know, that had disappeared over the years. And as time went by over those first few issues, the wrestlers were telling me, they say, you need to Go ahead and tell more of the story. Tell the story like it was. Don't worry about exposing anything. Everything's already exposed. And so I came around. Uh, granted, there, there were guys that, you know, still had a problem with certain subjects, you know, or saying, telling certain parts of the business. I guess the most uh, uh, one most frequently came up, and I've only had a few that didn't want to talk about it, would be about the use of the blade. Uh, you mentioned o- Oli was an open book jj was an open book jody hamilton was an open book to a point jody didn't really want to come right out and use much techn- uh wrestling jargon you know kayfabe, uh, uh carney type language uh, uh, but we but he did you know and <laughs> in fact something he he told me one story and there was a, he he didn't want to talk too much about the blade either if i remember right and there was one story he told me, and it was sort of like one of those stories, like he had told me there's some things he didn't want to talk about in the book. But one of these stories, either I did it on purpose or uh, didn't even think about it. And it's it, it went through. I published it in the book. And after the book came out, Jody emailed me. And of course, he was. we were just learning email at the time. And he says, I want to thank you so much. And this is just... Sort of what he what it, what I remember him saying is I want to thank you. The book is really good. You covered everything in such detail. I think it's so great. But you talked about this, and when I see you, I'm gonna rip your head off. <laughs> I mean, he was saying it in jest, you know. But I thought that was that was pretty funny. But uh, but other than that, no, most of the guys are were open books, uh, except like I said, just a, a handful who wouldn't talk about certain things like blading,
0: like. Why is blading such a uh, touchy subject?
1: Well, I think the use of the blade was one of the last things uh, really exposed. I mean, it had been exposed back, you know, 2020 and with uh, Eddie Mansfield and, you know, things. I mean, Roy Shire, they had all talked about the blade. In fact, the blade had been talked about in the 50s and 60s in, in newspaper articles. But... It was something the guys just felt was more uh, sacrosanct than than any other subjects like, you know, working a match or, uh, you know, things like that. I think it was just something that was just went a little deeper than uh, what, what most fans knew about pro wrestling, even if they knew a little bit of something. And it was sort of like the last bastion of kayfabe. And the, the wrestlers, I think, were just a little bit Uh, some of the wrestlers are just a little bit wary about going into that territory.
0: Yeah. And it's like a psychological thing. Like, why would you hurt yourself in that? Yeah. So I I sort of get it too. Like, why would you cut yourself in your head? I don't know. You know,
1: (laughs) you know, Red red means green is what they say.
0: Red means green. Talk about your experience with Stan Hansen. That must have been really cool, writing a
1: book with him. Yeah, that was pretty neat. You know, it's funny, but a lot of these books, uh, uh, several of the books, I guess I should say, really stemmed from the book I did with Ole Anderson, my first actual book.
0: Right.
1: First full-length book, uh, because it was right when we were in Charlotte. I mean, we had a line backed up from our table for three full days. I mean, it never let up. We signed books, we sold every book we took. And we took like 10 books of 10 cartons, like 25 books, we sold like 250 books. But that line never let up. And during that weekend, both JJ and Ivan Koloff came up and asked me if I'd be interested in in writing their books. Uh, Of course, I was man that that would just meant so much to me because they were both to me huge names in the business you know those are guys I really really could respect uh, based on what you know their accomplishments so it was nice to have somebody like that come up and then a year or so a few years later uh, Stan uh, got Stan had pretty much gotten out of the business and that's why he decided to write a book he didn't want to write one you know before that because he didn't want to he was still very kayfabe, I mean, up to the very end and, and into writing the book. He's another one that's, that did just did not want to write about the blade. And, the, you know, it was a little bit of push and pull at times with Stan, not much, but just uh, occasional things I'd ask him. And he, he'd like, oh boy, oh boy, I don't, I don't know if I want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, he was still in that. 70s mindset, and I, and I was too, you know, still for the most part, but I, I realized that the story, the information was out there, the business had been exposed, and nothing that I got or taught, asked the wrestlers was going to expose anything more than what was, was already being told, and my thought was, if the story is going to be told and people are going to expose the business, then I want the people to expose the business. So the people who were in the business, who knew the business and understood the business, rather than people th- who weren't in the business thinking they know something, telling all these stories about, oh, they did this. They did that because uh, so many times they, they don't know, really know all that much they're talking about. So that was my thinking, get the guys telling the stories themselves. So it came directly from the horse's mouth.
0: Um, you Stan,
1: were- Stan was great to work for. I mean, he... He sent me, I mean, a great manuscript. And, of course, we worked on it, worked on it. I sent him like 100-some pages of questions based on his manuscript, and we ended up with twice, as, twice of what, the, what he originally sent me. Uh, but so he was real, real good to work for. And what a nice guy. One thing I learned about Stan, and I've learned this in a lot of different cases, Stan, as a wrestler, was one of the most hated men. He was absolutely crazy, wild, arrogant, uh, you name it. But as a person, he is a real person in the world. He is one of the most meek, nice, uh, what word am I looking for? Humble men, I think, that, that I've ever met in the wrestling business. He doesn't believe his own hype. Uh, he is just shy, you know, somewhat shy as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we were at the Gulf Coast Wrestlers reunion one year, and Stan was there. And I, 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 at the time, I was emceeing their show. I was doing magic and comedy between all the variety acts they had. And I asked Stan, I said, "Stan, I'm gonna do a card trick, and I'd like you to come up here. And all I want you to do is come up, and I'm gonna have you pick a card, and uh, that, that's pretty much it." He hemmed and hawed. Oh, uh, 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 I don't know if I I don't know if I could get up and do that. I, 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 can you find somebody else? I'd rather not. Here he, here's a guy and I told the people that day when I got up there to do that trick. I said I asked Stan Hansen to help me with this, but he was so bashful about it doing it. I said here's a guy that has wrestled in Japan before tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in his underwear, and he was afraid to get up here and have me do, help me do a card trick. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the honest truth he was so nervous about getting up there just in front of his, his peers you know the other wrestlers and helping me with a card trick that that i just didn't <laughs> i said don't worry about us. i'll find somebody else but I, I always thought that was funny that stan was you know the the big mean guy rough guy he was and he was afraid to get up in front of uh, about 180 people
0: yeah you wrote books with rocky johnson and stan Hatt, and uh Tony Atwood's too. Yes. And those books are fantastic.
1: Well, thank you. Oh, you got a you got a copy of Rocky's for it was pulled off the shelf, huh?
0: No, I heard the great things about
1: it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah cuz it didn't go, you know, it didn't last very long on the shelves cuz I don't know what I don't know the whole story behind it, but it's problems the publisher had with Rock. That's the only book I didn't publish myself is the Rocky Johnson book and they had so many, the publisher had so many problems with Rocky that they decided to pull it. So uh, it's a shame, but it is a good book. I, I really enjoyed working on it.
0: Yeah, and you also were book with Tony Atlas, too.
1: Yep. Tony's a salt-of-the-earth guy. I, I love Tony. He's just so nice, and we had a lot of fun working with his book, and I learned a lot of things uh, I didn't know from talking with him and uh, a few things I wish I didn't know. <laughs> but yeah yeah, that was quite a lot of fun
0: too um Jeff Bowdrin being one
1: yes yeah Jeff Bowdrin uh two books actually one was based on uh, a series of interviews that uh were done in uh want to say Fort Lauderdale where a group of six fans like Jeff and four or five other guys would uh uh, bring in uh, a name wrestler, and they go to a restaurant, have dinner, and then they And then uh, the other book is uh, Boucher and the Booker, which is reprints of his um, Boucher and the Booker um, articles that he used to publish in the Observer way back in, the, I believe it was in the 90s.
0: Yeah, and the first book is Breaking Gate Babe, Dinner with Wrestling Legends of Wrestling, which yeah. you would get you would get different legends in. Um sorry I had to repeat that because you broke up a little bit there. Um but yes, but Jeff Baldwin is a great friend of the show.
1: Good. Jeff's a great guy, I feel for, for him what he's going through now. He's Really going through a tough time with chemo yes. and all the things he's going through. I just we just got to remember, keep him up in our prayers.
0: Keep him up in our prayers and keep fighting, Jeff. We love you, man. Yep, we do. I'm a good just friend for Barry Rose too. So
1: Barry's great. Barry's yeah, Barry great. lives
0: up in my area. So
1: oh, okay. Well, I never understood why he moved up there. I I thought he'd always live in Florida. <laughs>
0: Yeah, talk about some of your compiling books. How you put those together? Like you have the Alabama 1931 to 35, the history of the greatest wrestling ever. History of Nashville wrestling in the Garden. The complete history of Sam Munchnik's Missouri State Championship
1: book. Yes, the uh, the Missouri State Championship book was written by Roger Deem. Uh, Roger uh, had a love for St. Louis wrestling and the history of the uh, Missouri State title, belt. And that's what that book is about. It's uh, a great history book, but it's got a lot of quotes and information that came directly from the pro wrestlers themselves that held the Missouri title and people who were with the St. Louis promotion. Uh, that And then there's another compilation book uh, by Vern May. It's the wrestling, uh, history of pro wrestling in Western Canada. And it's about the Stu Hart promotion, how he came to start his promotion and all the results that took place all the different or not the results, but all the, all the different little promotions that came into being in Canada. And I'm, you're talking hundreds of promotions. It's amazing to wow. read about them all, but the, the main books that I'm, that I'm continuing now is my uh, great, what I call the great wrestling venues. And the first one was on Madison square garden. Uh, and I take people all the way back to the turn of the century when the first wrestling matches were ha- held at the garden and all the way up through uh, present day, uh, Uh, We, you know, present day when we when I published the book, Uh, the second one, of course, was Nashville up through 1960. Um, Eventually, I'll be getting back around to the second volume of the Nashville, which will take us from 1961 on up Uh, and then Alabama, which is Jason Presley, 1931, 35. Jason Presley is absolutely one of the top up and comer wrestling historians i mean he's at the top of the heap right now he does just phenomenal work uh if i have a question about a southern guy i don't know and i'm you know i have good resources here for information about the southern you know the guys that work down in the south man i email him and he comes across just so quickly you know with information on guys that i need I have so much respect for him. And then the other one is the book on Japan with uh, yes. Haruo, Haruo Yamaguchi, who spearheaded that one, and uh, Koji Miyamoto. That was really cool because uh, it's the Ricky Dozan years, how wrestling really got its start when it really took off in Japan. And, uh, I mean, it has results from every possible show you can think of for the years when Ricky Dozen was alive. And uh, I, I, I had so much fun with that book. Right now, I'm working on several histories uh, on the drawing board, and I haven't started. Well, I have started them. Uh, they're in some form of completion. I will be doing Tampa, Florida, St. Louis, but the ones uh, that are coming out first will be Amarillo, which is uh, going to be a two-volume set, uh, wow. a great, and it's got all the matches from the early 1900s all the way from... When uh, the promotion was well, actually, when the the last Funk show, the big uh, forty years of Funk or whatever they called it, and uh, it 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 has everything in it from Dory Funk Senior's arrival in Amarillo, you know how he got got hold of the promotion, all the Funks, all those great years in the '60s and the '70s of the Funks, and every single in Ninety nine. What's that?
0: Till the last show in '99.
1: That's I think that's when it was. Yes, absolutely. But it has everything for, for for all those years. It has program. It'll have program covers, articles from the newspaper, ads from the newspaper. Uh, that's Amarillo. And this week I've been working on uh, Knoxville. There's a guy named Tim Dills in uh, South, uh, South Tennessee that uh, actually wrote a ton on that. And he's researched most of the results. I've gone through and I'm adding a whole lot of stuff to it. I mean, Uh, Great. A lot of information about George Kazan the promoter that I know that Tim didn't, but Tim has so much information. It's just unbelievable. Uh, about every single wrestler, especially in the sixties and seventies, fifties through the seventies that came through Knoxville. We're going to have every, every card ever held in in Knoxville that we could find, uh, ads, uh, newspaper articles. It's, I just cannot wait. I'm up through 1948 right now. And, uh, it started in 1905, and Ooh. it looks like it's going to be two, maybe even three books. Uh, it, it's it's huge, and go it'll go all the way up through the Fuller years and Blackjack Mulligan after that. So, so I uh, yeah I have a You're lot on my pl-
0: go up to Smoky Mountain.
1: Yep, yep, we go through Smoky Mountain. Not real heavy on Smoky Mountain because I think that's a book that. Uh, Really, would best be done with with Jim Cornette, but we we do cover everything that happened with Smokey, you know, in Knoxville.
0: Yes. So. Yeah,
1: Smokey will be a book of its own. I mean, whether I work on it or somebody else does, but I think Smokey Mountain Wrestling would be a phenomenal book. I'd love to collaborate with Jim on that one. Uh, in fact, that's something I was meaning to uh, planning to contact him about because I'd like that. That's something I'd really love to do. Yes. Um
0: that would be actually a really good book or a really good shoot interview. Just Jim Cornette talking about all the Smoky Mountain stories.
1: Right, sure. Just go through every card and talk about how he, you know, how he came up with the idea for the card, the different matches, the the, the the highlight matches, you know, the stipulations, all that kind of stuff, you know. There'd be a lot we could do with it.
0: Yes, it would, it would be a treasure trove, honestly. Yep. I, because... He did a similar thing for like ninety seven WWE WWF for yeah. kayfabe commentaries and it was phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Yep. There's a lot. There's a lot out there, you know, vibe that Jim has talked about on on those shoot interviews about Smokey, but I think it'd be cool to pull it all together into a you know some type of book.
0: Right. It would. It would be really cool. Um to do that um let's talk about your great facebook page and twitter page here for a
1: second um
0: you try to update it every day Uh uh-huh yeah it
1: started started out as a uh just a collection of clips um that i got from you know uh, dick steinborn somewhere from about the dick steinborn and his dad and then i started adding a lot of more of my stuff from my own files and over time i just changed the name of it to the crowbar press archives and i present each day i try and present a new uh newspaper write up uh article ad that's interesting and something different than what you usually read you know when you when you read about pro wrestling in magazines or books uh, this is more things like wrestlers uh, being arrested for one thing or another r- 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 fans rioting at the arenas uh, rest uh, fans having heart attacks during the wrestling matches because they get so excited all kinds of things like that that most people have never ever seen and i've got whew, i mean thousands and thousands of newspaper articles about things like that that uh, that are really interesting And and i just try and add you know add to that that uh, page every single day so that people every morning, they've got something new to read about the past in pro wrestling. Uh, Twitter, I did start a Twitter account uh, about a year and a half ago and I think I got about posted a few things and haven't done anything since then.
0: <laughs> I, I well, just there are some comment. great Twitter accounts out there that yeah. do post. Okay, yeah sorry
1: Oh, that's all right go ahead
0: sorry i said there are great twitter accounts that do post things
1: yeah yeah i wish i had more time to do it on twitter but it's pretty much with my writing i'm writing every day i'm up at four in the four or five in the morning i'm busy working on books uh from time i get up until four or five in the afternoon i mean my wife and i will go you know we well when we could go out we'll go out and eat or you know, we do things with the grandkids when we can. But if, if we're not doing something, watching television together or movies or something like that, then I'm here at the front of my computer working on my books. I mean, that's what I live for. I love it. Yes.
0: So, I basically plugged your whole website. <laughs> <laughs> so, is where you can find everything. Is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Everything's right there on that front page and uh i've got i got tons of stuff to add that, that i'll be and i got a lot of new posters i just haven't had time to put online i've got a lot of videos probably 50 videos that uh, dvds that i haven't put up there yet of, of, of things like old uh house shows that most people have never seen that have never been available before uh, i've got a lot of that coming and i'm also working on uh i'm backing off of the autobiographies because i just don't uh, I, some of them I really enjoy some I'd much rather be sitting in front of my files and researching things like Knoxville history I, that's what I love doing or Amarillo history or, or whatever Tampa you know I love doing that digging and finding these little nuggets of information that people have never heard you know that, that have never been told before uh, that's what I enjoy more than anything uh, but I do have a few autobiographies i uh, that on the, uh, in the works that I, that I had already planned to do uh, uh, several, you know, quite a while ago. Uh, the first out will probably be uh, Frankie Kane. I've got a two-volume set coming on. Frankie was one of the Masked Infernos in the 60s, and he also wrestled as a great Mephisto in the 70s into the 80s. And uh, he is a phenomenal storyteller and I- I'm going to present it in an uh, interview fashion, just like my old whatever happened to magazines, uh, rather than try and rewrite it and make it sound as if he's writing a book. You know, it comes across so much better. Uh, I love my interviews because when you read something in an interview format, you know, I ask a question and it makes the reader feel like they're asking the question and that they're sitting across the table from the wrestler as he tells her story, rather than as opposed to sitting there reading a wrestler's story told on paper. You know it, it's just a more personal feel to it. So, so that's how Frankie's book's going to be. Uh, I'm also working on books with uh, Joel Goodhart, who promoted uh, the original ECW wrestling up, up in uh, Philadelphia, or yes. it wasn't ECW, but uh, it was you know the, what right. led to, be, to ECW. Yes, that's it. And then uh, another book is with Bert Prentice, uh, the promoter in, uh, who promotes regularly in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, I've done quite a bit of interview work with, with both Joel and Bert. And uh, uh, the main thing right now I've got to do is get them typed up. That's the hardest thing. I just don't have time to do the transcriptions. But I'm in the process of finding somebody. Somebody right now has uh, offered to help me with some of that. So as soon as that starts happening, then I'll be turning these books out pretty quickly.
0: yep yep thank you scott for coming on
1: today well sure thank you for asking me i really appreciate it. i love doing these
0: i really appreciate you coming on and for for danny for scott Teo, this was danny Cooper and that was getting the ring